welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. I'm your host, Stella Bales. For any new listeners who don't know what to expect, in each episode, I interview an expert on an emerging area of public relations. I get to the facts, but I leave out the jargon. It's a podcast about marketing, but it's in plain language. No, really, it is. (laughs) Welcome back to all of my regular listeners too. If any of you have any comments or questions, just tweet me at Stella Bales. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and on iTunes, whatever you listen on at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Hello, hello, welcome. So at the release point of this podcast episode, we are just over three weeks from the start of the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Normally, at this stage, we are at the height of World Cup hype. We know the team, we have our predictions... We even know what the Wags are doing by now, but not for this World Cup. Players are still playing domestic games and the media have really only covered the big issues surrounding the event. And there are many. So what does this mean for the associated brand sponsors? Are there the same newsjacking opportunities for non-sponsor brands? This year, it is all very different in terms of strategy, reputation, activation at the games and also, of course, measurement for the comms. So I've brought in an expert to help us navigate all of this. In this episode, I'm interviewing Andy Sutherden. If you work in sports PR, you may well know him. He is the ex-global head of sports partnerships and marketing at HK Strategies. That's where I first met him. And he's also the former head of international brand consulting at CAA, which is Creative Artists Agency. So he's been to the other side as well. He has over 30 years experience in brand partnership deals and in particular sport. And this certainly shows in our chat. So we start with a real deep dive into the £50 billion sponsorship industry. We cover the benefits and the challenges for brands involved in a big games like this. We talk about the controversies surrounding this World Cup, what that means for official partners and non-official planning to use the games as a hook. Andy shares what to consider and how to prepare for crisis. We also cover the Danish sponsor, Hummel, and their interest in shirt launch, their stance on human rights issues, but also some of the conflicting stories around that that have been buried. Plus, Andy shares his prediction on why the marriage of several coincidences surrounding this tournament may have just set a new template for all future World Cups. This interview is full of wisdom, practical advice, and whether you're working on a World Cup campaign now or thinking about using it as a hook, or like me, you're just into the game, the brands and the fans, get ready because we're about to be educated. Here's Andy. We have got a mixture of people listening to this who are in the sports world, but there's a lot who are in other verticals too. So if you really interesting just to have a short back to basics on when we're working with a brand and they want to get involved in a huge event what is the makeup with that to understand how it works assumes that people understand the term sponsorship so even before your question Stella if I may I'd like to go back another pace and define what we mean by the term sponsorship because actually it's often misunderstood Most understand it to be a financial transaction between a rights holder and a company. And that allows the company to officially associate itself with an event or a league, an activity or a person. 
But I, I prefer to think of sponsorship more as a partnership between two organisations where people unite around common passions that lead to business and human growth. And there is, it's almost a Freudian truth, isn't it, that if people congregate around common passions, then the only thing that is going to happen is growth. People are going to grow friendship circles, businesses, if they insert themselves in the right way, they are going to feel the loyalty of, of that sort of impassioned group of people. So I always like to think of the industry as an industry that is more about partnerships. So if we think about from and to, so from the word of sponsorship to the word of partnership, from this idea of transaction to this idea of investment, so stop thinking of companies writing a check to FIFA just as a right of entry into the World Cup. Now, of course, that's true, but it's actually an investment into the world's most popular sport. It's an investment rather than a transaction. I mm. prefer to think of it that way. And instead of being official, think of being invested so I think sometimes the word sponsorship has an image problem yeah. because there is something a, a little old school, a little tired about the idea of being official. Everyone loves to be unofficial, a little bit of an ambusher, a little bit of a can I jump over the fence for this game. People enjoy the idea of pushing the boundaries of rulemaking. So I think sponsorship is in the throes of reinventing itself and that starts with language, I think. And it's a popular thing. When we start talking about partnership marketing, and uh, I'll bong myself out if I carry on talking about sponsorship with that intro, but when we think about the global industry, do you know it's, it's worth £50 billion globally, £25 billion in Europe. It's a significant business. And if we zoom in even more, £50 billion globally, 25 billion just in Europe. Sponsorship spend in the UK is about three and a half billion. It was in 2021, according to the European Sponsorship Association. So after COVID, it was just over three billion. Kind they, of is that sport or is that across the board? Across the board. Yeah. Across the board. So in the UK specifically, sponsorship in 2021 was about a 70 30 split. 70% sport, 30% was made up of the other areas, music, arts, philanthropy. So that's about a £2.7 billion into sports sponsorship in the UK in 2021, with the balance of about £1.1 billion in non-sports sponsorship. Mm. So it's a big industry, and, and by volume, the majority of sponsorships are team sponsorships, about a third team sponsorships. So when we think of this idea of, of partnerships, more often than not, it's a partnership with a team. Yeah. About 20% of for events, and we'll come on to talk about the World Cup, but about a fifth of the global sponsorship industry is invested in and around events. But by value, the most expensive partnerships are for events and organisations. Yeah. So it's interesting that there's a, there is a difference between where the majority of partnerships live, i.e. around teams, but where the majority of the value and spend exists, which is actually around events and organisations. The landscape is really interesting with these big sporting events. There's the 
partnerships with the organizer and the big industry bodies like FIFA for the World Cup. Then there's teams, then individual players, and then all of the makeup around it as well. And there's just so many levels of sponsorship and partnerships. And let's get into it. This World Cup, some of those deals would have been done before this event. So I imagine if a team is sponsored by a brand, would they have been sponsoring them before the before the World Cup? Would they just constantly be a sponsor? Or with an event this size, would they be new deals? So would they be thinking about Qatar event and then thinking, okay, now we want to do a new deal? How does it work? You're right, it's complex. <laughs> and there isn't a quick answer to it other than to try and simplify the sponsorship structure around a FIFA World Cup, for example. And each major event has its own nuance and its own hierarchy of partners, if you will. But for FIFA, they have a number of FIFA partners that that partner with FIFA over an extended period of time, and they're involved in all of the FIFA properties. Everything from the women's game to youth tournaments to the main FIFA World Cup events, the men's senior men's tournament, for example, I think there is still a beach football tournament now. There's esports within a FIFA. Within FIFA. Yeah. So when you're, and there are seven of them, by the way, there are seven partners that are involved in FIFA as a governing body. So Adidas, Coke, Hyundai, Wonder Group, Qatar Energy, Qatar Airways and Visa. Right. These are FIFA partners that will partner with FIFA across all of their commercial assets. Then you, and by the way, they for that luxury, they spend between $25 and $50 million every year. Not many of the precise numbers are published, of course, but to give you a range, that's the quantum of investment. Then you have sponsors that are just in it for the events. And as we're talking about it, the event in Qatar in just over a month's time has attracted eight event-only sponsors. So you have the FIFA partners. Next layer down, you have event sponsors, the FIFA 2022 FIFA World Cup sponsors. And there are eight brands like Budweiser, McDonald's, Vivo, Crypto.com. So these brands will spend a reported 15 to $25 million dollars just to be associated with that World Cup event. Then you have team sponsors. Then each player may, very well may, have individual sponsors mm-hmm. as well. So, yes, it's complicated. And each football association picks the best 11. They turn up as a country. And each football association will have its own sponsors. The English FA have deals with... For example, Barclays and Nationwide, who are not FIFA sponsors. Therefore, they're not allowed to activate their sponsorships around the time of the FIFA World Cup, unless it's exclusively associated with the England team. So I think one of the skills in the industry now is just being able to legally navigate around the stuff that you can and can't do. Because obviously, if you're going to be investing, Stella, that amount of money, to acquire official rights that give you permission to activate. The last thing you want is for an easy passage for a brand to ambush. So the way rights are protected are vigilant 
And because of that vigilance, when you're brand planning, if you're not going to be a FIFA World Cup sponsor, but you still want to activate around the event, you need to take some very smart advice as to what you can and can't do so you don't unwillingly take your brand into disrepute and find yourself in in reputational risk. So can we just touch on the activation a little bit and go into some of that detail? Because obviously sure. there will be brands out there that are not official sponsors, but will use the World Cup as a hook with a PR story. So when we're talking about what line they can cross with activation, are we talking about the use of a logo? Are we talking about hooks with PR stories, which we obviously won't say an official partner, but they could be still putting stories out there with their own players. Like say there's a Puma sponsoring a player and they want to talk about their involvement in the World Cup and they're using it as a campaign. Can they do that? Because they're not saying that we're an official partner, but they can use the World Cup as a hook, right? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And in many marketing departments, they've almost given themselves a brief as to how to effectively ambush. Yeah. And there are multiple examples in years gone by of effective ambush campaigns. The ones that spring to my mind normally come from brands like Paddy Power, these challenger brands that almost celebrate the fact that they haven't got the money to officially become a partner of a World Cup or an Olympics. But they want to be associated because they know that's where the majority of the public attention will be. And they want to turn up some way, somehow. Mm. And brands like Paddy Power will be, they will be fun, they'll be irreverent, they'll provoke, they'll push the laws to within an inch of being find themselves, but they will somehow grab the attention of the public with something that is timely, something that is creative, often something that just makes you smile. So these things rely on you avoiding some clear own goals if i can use a footballing metaphor things like don't use the logo if you haven't if you haven't bought the rights to use the logo don't use the logo don't use sort of marks and references and words that have been protected within the corporate suitcase of the official rights if you like so for example around the time of the london olympics you can't copyright and protect london that's a place that's a capital city, but you can protect London 2012 because that's an event. Yeah. So you can see how deep down a rabbit hole you can go with breaching official rights where companies have spent millions to acquire those officially. Mm -hmm. And ambushers will try and do everything they can to get around the language, make sure that they're not using logos, any visuals that, that the term is passing off. Are you trying to pass off as an official sponsor, but you're not? Mm. So anything that parades and presents a company um, as a sponsor, but they're not actually, they would get a legal letter pretty quickly from the rights holder because they're trying to protect the value of those that have paid to play. Mm. So I think whilst ambush marketing has always won the hearts and minds of, of fans, the industry needs to become better at explaining the value of official sponsors and where their money goes. Because if you took out commercial sponsorship from many of these events, there would be no events. No. And I think the public and fans particularly need to understand 
the value beyond just the monetary value, the enhancement of the experience and the way in which so many of the facilities and the overall experiences of the fans are delivered through the money that the rights holders get through official partnerships. There is a slow burn education campaign, I think, that is still ongoing and will remain ongoing mm. to celebrate the role of official partners rather than celebrate the role of the ambush marketeers. As much as they might cohabit a space, I think fans are slowly becoming used to the idea of recognising the value of official partners. And I, I don't think that can ever be underestimated. No. Let's move over into the actual brand sponsors now and why I was so keen to speak to you, Andy. It was actually my boyfriend who shared the story, Hummel, who is the Denmark sponsor. So for anyone who hasn't seen that story, they've really toned down the sponsorship and the colour of their shirts because of the controversy surrounding the event. Now, I'm sure most people will be aware of why we're talking about the controversies around the event. There's many from the selection of Qatar being the host country to the big one of the human rights in the building of the infrastructure around the event, but then also laws within the country. But um, particularly Hummel have decided to really tone down the shirts are quite dark colours, not big branding across them because they don't want to associate themselves as much with the human rights issues around the event. As I said, my boyfriend shared that story with me. He's not involved in the PR industry. He is a mechanic. He drives around in a van every day and he has lots of bloke mates who talk about football. He listens to talk sport every day. He was really taken aback by that story. All of his friends were sharing it and they have a huge respect for Hummel. They want to buy the shirts. They, their opinion of that brand was, it was so interesting from a PR and marketing person myself to listen to that and go, wow, that's really interesting that you are taking this view on the brand. And it's all of the news stories around that announcement. This is a real change in brand sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and have we seen this kind of thing before with past big events with sponsors, Andy? Have we had this kind of experience before where brands don't want to shout about the sponsorship in association with an event? The Hummel case is an interesting one. And that the infamous monochrome World Cup shirt, as it be- has become known, it really reminds us that there are going to be moments where brands are as aware of the reputational risk as they are the reputational opportunity. And I don't think there is a company that would willingly spend money knowing that they will sleepwalk into reputational harm. And Hummel, with their long-term partnership with the Danish national team, actually, they recognise the fact that there are going to be many fans that have a problem with the host country for the 2022 World Cup. And in a show of empathy, they decided to almost demark, tone down the shirt and take it right back to, almost literally right back to cloth. In fact, their third kit is an all black kit, which is basically in, it's to signify the color of mourning for those who lost their life during the stadium construction. So they've even gone in a third kit, they've gone down the route of, a black kit. Now, 
to your question, has there been an example of other brands that have basically avoided an opportunity to activate despite having rights versus turning it up? What I would say to that is if a partner has spent the money to become an official sponsor, if they choose to sit on their hands, it effectively amounts to a waste of money. Some might say, rather than spend money and increase the risk to my brand from a reputational point of view, it's safer for me to not activate at all than it is to turn up the volume of our work. Mm. So I think modern day partnership marketing is characterized by the most important mandate of all, which is the need for issues and crisis management and to be prepared for it to all go wrong rather than go running into a honeymoon thinking it's all going to be sweetness and light. Because the reality is, and it doesn't matter if it's Qatar or, or if it's four years ago, by the way, we were in Russia. So this conversation four years ago would have been looking down the barrel of a World Cup in Russia, mm. not without its problems, clearly. So some brands will look at a destination and associate a whole host of problems, cultural, societal, political, and they will take an active decision to not activate. The smarter brands will find a way through because they understand that regardless of where a World Cup is going to be held, there is still going to be a core community of impassioned fans that are just focused on the 90 minutes. They love big tournament football. And regardless of the surround sound of issues that we seem to be getting a month out before the Qatar World Cup, there is still a body of fans that will be cheering on their country, cheering on their players and looking forward to football. A lot of the conversation from the fan side, not my conversations in, in, in PR or marketing, the fan side, which is happening because we're getting closer and closer, is the fact is, yes, we can talk about the issues. I know some people, I'm not sure if I should watch how I feel about this. Yeah. But 5 billion people will tune in. That's, yes. that's the truth. People yes. will be tuning in. And that's the point of the huge audience that a, a big event like this pulls in. Brands mm. will be seen. Yeah. So social media amplifies problems and it suppresses opportunity a lot of the time because Twitter is a community where anger is expressed much more than joy. So given the volume of consumption around social media, people become almost conditioned to the negative before they're given the opportunity to see the positive. And I think I would draw on so many examples where the good news and the opportunities for companies are just suppressed under the volume of noise and negativity. And with the Hummel example, there is an interesting irony slash contradiction, which hasn't had much airtime, that Hummel shirts are made in China. So if people want to take a stance around human rights, they actually need to understand that the supply chain for Hummel shirts and the kit that the Denmark team will be wearing, many of those shirts will in fact have been made in China, which of course is a country that has been exposed itself to a whole host of human rights issues as well. So some would call it hypocritical to take a position 
to get behind Hummel because their stance around what they've done with the monochrome shirts is to present the shop window of an argument without really taking you inside to understand the real supply chain story of them as a business because it exposes them as well, because there are going to be some people that have and will continue to talk about that as an irony. In the same way, and you'll remember this, Stella, that Cristiano Ronaldo sat at a press conference during the Euros and he found himself in front of a Coca-Cola bottle that he moved to one side to slide in a bottle of water. So that was basically an active rejection from one of the signature players at Euros to say, I don't want fizzy drink, I'd rather have water. Now, of course, the publicity that ensued from that, Coca-Cola might say, actually, we, if ever there was a moment to remind people that we're very much involved in this tournament, it was that moment. But it was Coca-Cola do not need awareness. Arguably, they don't need all forms of publicity. And many would suggest that was a, an unfortunate moment for Coke. But it does remind me of the influence that athletes have in high-profile sports and the opportunity that they often give themselves to make a societal or indeed a political statement. So when brands go into modern-day partnerships, this is what I mean when I say that it carries as much reputational risk as it does opportunity. So the smart brands are the prepared brands. And to make sure that whether it's the country hosting with all of its incumbent issues or whether it's the political stance or lifestyle habits of a particular player, Cristiano Ronaldo, for example, rejecting Coke and bringing in water. These are scenarios and situations that strong marketeers are ready for. And they take advantage of the positive and they look to control and suppress the negative. And I think that's particularly difficult with the narrative that is built around the Qatar World Cup in just over a month's time. This podcast is brought to you by Coverage Book, the tool that creates beautifully designed reports with credible metrics you can be proud of. Head to coveragebook.com for your free trial. Because a lot of these issues that surround this event have been known for a long time, haven't they? So I guess with your point of preparation within a brand marketing team, that must have been work that has been going on behind the scenes of looking at each issue. It'd be great if you can give us some insight of what kind of preparation is involved in that. And like your revelation there of Hummel shirts being made in China, wow. Surely that must have been raised at some point around the table when they're looking at what could happen, their crisis management meetings for Hummel when they're exploring the shirts release and the PR around that. It's surprised that that's that's surprised and shocked me that has that that hasn't come out yet. Surely that would come up. Sorry, I'm mixing my questions here. It'd be great to get some insight in the kind of preparation. Sure. Sure. The Hummel shirts being made in China, I don't know if they're exclusively made in China. I know that many lines of their apparel are made in China. Whether the Danish World Cup jerseys are actually made in China, I don't know. But the point stands that hypocrisy is never far away from these well-heated debates. And the informed fan will look into, if they're going to adopt a position based on morals, 
they're going to they're going to dig right deep down into the story to really understand what their ultimate position is going to be on something. So we look at Qatar. No doubt there has been one way traffic in the build up to this World Cup, particularly in the Western world, as to what that World Cup is going to be about. And I haven't heard the word football much. I've heard a lot about human rights, migrant workers, slavery, the volume of deaths in the construction of new stadia. That's the first thing, human rights. Logistics. It's a relatively small country, and we'll come on to talk about this shortly, I'm sure. But the logistics of hosting a World Cup requires good infrastructure, the ability to actually book yourself into a hotel if you're going to go. There is a relative shortage of accommodation. There's a lot of offshore accommodation, cruise lines being shipped in. So you can temporarily upweight the capacity for fans to to sleep overnight just by bringing in ships because they can't build enough hotels in time. So there's an accommodation issue. There's a timing issue. We're a month away from a World Cup. We're in October. Normally, World Cup runways are measured in months, certainly weeks, whereas the runway for this World Cup is measured in minutes and days because, we're, of course, we're in the middle of very busy domestic seasons. So the pre-tournament hype has been suppressed because of the timing of the World Cup. And, of course, you can't have a World Cup, really, in Qatar in July because it's 40-plus degrees. So they've moved it. They've moved it to November, December, where it's going to be considerably cooler. And with the moving of the World Cup, it means that it is slap bang in the middle of domestic football seasons. So you're asking people to whip themselves up into their normal frenzy of excitement around a World Cup when actually their passion and their, their frenzy around football is devoted to the domestic game, not the international game at this time of year. So the pre-tournament hype has been compressed. And I think that's an issue for brands that invest in these tournaments. And we've heard how many millions of dollars that they do invest in becoming an official sponsor of a World Cup that normally has an activation shelf life of months. You build up the hype, it builds to a frenzy. Then you have the tournament and then there's the afterglow of the tournament. I think the build up to this World Cup is characterised by Mute sound because of the domestic season. Mute, mute. And then there'll be a sudden spike of interest, literally in the days leading up to the FIFA World Cup. And then subject to how the World Cup goes, there'll be a very short window of afterglow. And then you're back into the domestic season. Mm -hmm. So the domestic seasons of most countries taking part in the World Cup are bookending this FIFA World Cup. So you haven't got the opportunity to really get as excited as you normally would. And you won't have the opportunity to reflect and bask in a brilliant World Cup in the way that we have in years gone by, because you're straight back into club football. So I think the timing is a challenge for brands, particularly for brands. And then, of course, we have the cultural and political issues. LGBT fans not being welcomed. It's a dry country, Qatar. So if you're Budweiser and you're an official partner of the FIFA World Cup, obviously you need to create enclosed spaces. So your in-market activation opportunities are very much reduced. Allegations of corruption, of course, but really the most acute noise 
the noise that I can't seem to get away from is the noise around human rights. Mm. So with this landscape, you do wonder how on earth a brand could look with optimism towards a Qatar World Cup, given the bear traps that seem to surround so much of the communication. Mm. But a well-prepared brand will understand that the in-market activation will be relatively light. You compare that to previous World Cups where the experiential activity was very heavy. South Africa, I, I was privileged to go to South Africa, huge brand activations, the same in Brazil, less so in Russia. But I think Qatar is a, it's a different prospect completely. And I think one of the legacies of COVID is that it's accelerated the learning of brands when it comes to virtual communication with audiences. So a forced shutdown drove so much online. The digital space, particularly around high-profile sports events, has not only accelerated, but it's improved in terms of its creative output and its ability to authentically connect with fans. Mm -hmm. So you're in a small country where a lot of the fan communication is going to be virtual, not in-person, off the back of a global pandemic where many brands and many rights holders had to get used to communicating with their audiences virtually. So it's almost the marriage of several coincidences, really, that takes us to the conclusion that brand marketing around the Qatar World Cup is predominantly going to be out of market and online. Mm. Whereas in years gone by, so much of the spend has been in-country, around fan parks, and the live experience. Yeah. So I think this is fundamentally going to alter the marketing spend and the marketing pattern for all of those reasons that I've just highlighted mm-hmm. that may well set a, a, if not a new template, an altered template for future World Cups. It's always about the change in the preparation the planning, crisis management strategies being put in place and the activation being different, more online, as you've just said. Moving into during the event and then after the event and managing the monitoring, the success, if it's success or just the activity and trying to evaluate that at the end. Again, could we get some insight into how it would normally be run? So monitoring brand partnership and brand sponsorship in a big event in comparison to an event like the World Cup where there are a lot of reputation issues. The measurement of the brand mentions must be very interesting. So insight in what it would normally be like with a, a normal past event in comparison to something like this. How do you measure the success of a brand sponsorship? Every event brings controversy. So this is not unique to Qatar. Every event brings controversy. So one measure of success is how anticipated issues have been managed and controlled. All of your listeners will appreciate the complexity and the challenges of activating a World Cup in Russia. All of your listeners will understand that however exciting a World Cup in Brazil must have been, there were still issues in Brazil, particularly around infrastructure. There's quite a lot of crime in Brazil around many of the World Cup venues. Let's for a moment fast forward to next World Cup, which is in Mexico, the US and Canada. So let's just think about that for a moment. 
And in answering your question about what does success look like, brands might already be thinking about the next World Cup beyond Qatar. Because, of course, if we're talking about human rights issues in Qatar, in the US, most abortions are now banned in at least 13 US states. So if we're going to get very animated around human rights, there are human rights issues in the US as well as there are in Qatar. Logistics. Let's think about logistics for a moment. Doha is roughly the size of Dublin. When you're a, when you're a national team planning the logistics of how you move around a country hosting a World Cup, Qatar, in many ways, is an ideal setup because you can have one base camp. Mm. The geography is so small, it doesn't matter where you are beyond the group stages. You know that you're always going to be a coach ride away from your next venue. So the compactness of the World Cup is hugely advantageous by being in such a relatively small country. Think about the next World Cup. The tournament will span three countries that is over 10 million square miles, 10 million square miles. Compare that to four and a half thousand square miles in Qatar. So that's going to make it expensive and difficult to follow your team. And let's not even think about the environmentalists and when we start hearing about the normal lines around net zero and decarbonisation, because moving around 10 million square miles will inevitably require flights. So carbon footprint, logistics, the ability of a fan to follow his or her team around a tournament when you've got 10 million square miles to cover across three countries. Mm. And let's talk about cultural and political issues. The next World Cup, Mexico, America, Canada. We've got a president accused of inciting a riot that led to five deaths in America. We've got a militarized border separating the US and Mexico. There are more guns than people in America. So when we think about cultural and political issues, country by country, every country has issues. It just seems the volume around the Qatari World Cup has been turned up so much with death to issues of countries that have hosted World Cups before and countries that are going to host the World Cup next. Mm. So I think a real balance and perspective is required. When we get on many soapboxes and we talk about the atrocity and we talk about the problems of Qatar hosting a World Cup, actually every country has its problems. I remember on the eve of the London 2012 Olympics, The only narrative I could read about in our media in the UK was it's going to rain, it's going to be a washout, but more importantly, there are terror threats all around us. We're scared. So every country has its issues. It just so happens that the issues around Qatar have been dialed up so much. The one thing that we're not hearing about and being given the opportunity to get excited about is football. Mm. I think that's a great shame because this is going to be a tremendous World Cup. So once the noise of the protesters calms down and we can actually think about the 90 minutes, a World Cup that could be the last World Cup for players like Messi and Ronaldo, this should be a celebration of the world's best footballers Mm. rather than a preoccupation around all of the issues that surround this particular World Cup. I'm not saying that there aren't issues. Mm. There's a lot to be really pleased and happy about in terms of the prospects of a World Cup. Because there are issues in the next countries hosting the World Cup, as I've just described. So, when we reflect then, Stel, to your question, so what does success look like? I think the first thing to say is 
have I as a brand communicated in the right way at the right time to fans and not allowed the negative commentary pour cold water on my good intent to make this a joyous occasion? Can I as a company say that I've enhanced the enjoyment in market or more probably out of market of any fan that is tuning into the World Cup or attending the World Cup? Have I added value to that experience? So the pre and post analysis of brand love equity scores, there are so many, your listeners will be familiar with Nielsen studies, Kantar studies. So has this sponsorship moved the needle in brand equity? Yes or no? How do my people feel? What do my staff feel about my company being involved in this World Cup? Yes, there's controversy at Qatar, in Qatar, but there's going to be controversy in Mexico, Canada and the States. At each World Cup, in each major sports event, full stop, as a brand, am I coming out the other side where my staff feel really proud of their company's involvement in that particular event? Staff engagement is key. Sometimes this is an undersold, undertold story about the importance of effective partnership marketing because a highly engaged workforce is a highly productive workforce. More productivity, more profit. Mm -hmm. So the connection to growth between staff engagement and company growth is explicit. Mm -hmm. So from an employer brand perspective, has it moved the needle positively in the volume and the quality of applicants that I get for new job openings in my particular company. Mm. Do I sell more stuff? We spoke about the rise of e-commerce and digital. Has my sponsorship given me a route one to consumer? Are the, the masses of public that are going to be leaning into this World Cup that aren't necessarily football fans, but they love the big occasions? Are they going to stumble across my business and be compelled to go into an e-retail space? click buy a product, click buy a service. So can I see bottom line dividend as a result of this sponsorship? And I think the ability to demonstrate bottom line growth as a result of a sponsorship is becoming more and more important. Mm. I would love to see those different layers post-event, any sponsorship brands involved to, to be able to share that kind of measurement and analysis afterwards would just be a huge insight to their reputation, their brand, their employee interaction, the fan interaction, all of those different layers to then go through to hopefully sales towards the end. And the thing is, still, the thing is, still, I'll tell you this. Some, somebody asked me the question, if sponsorship were an Olympic sport, what Olympic sport would it be? And once I got over the weirdness of the question, I came up with the answer that a sponsorship person inside an, a business is actually the decathlete. So I've got in my head this idea of the corporate decathlete, the individual that is multitasking, is in all parts of the arena is good at many different disciplines and has the ability to know how to use their skills in different ways at different times. So the analogy switches to a corporate brand where the person responsible for the sponsorship is able to answer your question. How do I measure success? Because success is not exclusively contained within the marketing department. And a 
corporate decathlete has the ability to stand back and look at the 180 degrees of their business and understand that actually the investment is coming centrally. There are going to be marketing benefits. There are going to be sales benefits. There are going to be HR benefits because of staff engagement and employee brand. People in research and development could extract value from a partnership from an R&D perspective. I can open up new markets. I can launch new products. So sponsorship within the slim channel of marketing amounts to a relative waste of money because you're denying yourself to think horizontally across your business. Too many sponsorships think vertically down the marketing tunnel of where a partnership could yield a dividend. Whereas actually, if a corporate decathlete, as I'm describing this person, were to take blinkers off, look horizontally across the business, look in every department within an organization, there is advantage from a partnership to be had across the universe of an organization. So to answer the question, how am I gonna measure success? Start with this question. What are my objectives and can I measure the return on those objectives? Mm. Because the return on investment might come from bottom line sales. It might come from healthy staff retention. And that does show itself on a P&L, but actually it's not quite as commercial as some of the more typical metrics of success. Mm. So think about a return on objectives that lead to a return on investment. And think about sponsorship as the horizontal line in an organization, not a steep vertical that is almost exclusively owned by marketing. Mm. I think there's lessons there in all areas of communication, not just sponsorship, even for people who are not going down the brand sponsorship route. Communication touches every part of a business. So there's absolutely amazing lesson there for for all listeners in, in PR communications. It doesn't work unless you're thinking about the whole business. Um, Andy, we could talk all day. <laughs> I have more questions. Let's do it. You've given amazing advice for all listeners, not just people who would be working in the sports industry here. Can people get in touch with you if they're looking at reputation strategies and crisis, even if it's not within the sports industry? How can people get more of your amazing nuggets of advice? <laughs> how can they connect? That's for other people to describe anything that I tell them as amazing or in nugget form. But I'm completely open for anyone that wants to tap me up and get whatever experience and insight I can offer. It is always a privilege to help people out. And I'm best found on LinkedIn. So direct message me on LinkedIn. I'll be fast to get back to you. It'll be an absolute privilege because... We work in an industry that is all about bringing people together around common passion points. So I'm an evangelist for the world of sports marketing and partnership marketing particularly. So if I can convey any of that passion and share any experience, it will be an absolute pleasure. Amazing. I will include relevant links in the notes. I feel like I want to do a follow-up podcast with you now after the event to see how it all went. And hopefully we can start to get, yeah. Okay, great. You've agreed. That's a good idea. That, that That's a good idea. That's a date. Let's revisit this in the new year when we're the other side of a Qatari World Cup, which is unusually timed, but it gives us an opportunity to speak in January. Definitely. Uh, so let's promise ourselves. 
that'll be fun. Listeners, you've heard it here. Expect part two in January. I think it'll be really interesting and hopefully we can all just get excited about the game, as you say. Hopefully. Yeah, let's start talking about football and park our negativity for five minutes because if you look for negativity, guess what? You'll normally find it. If you search positivity, you'll end up having a much better experience. And that's been my learning in the industry for over 30 years. And I just hope that the Qatari World Cup can leave us with headlines that we're going to be proud of, rather than headlines that is in constant search of the negativity. They're going to deliver a wonderful World Cup of that, I'm sure. So seatbelts on, let's get ready for it. Be great. Good life lessons there, Andy, as well, not just in PR. (laughs) Look for the well, positivity. <laughs> Andy, thank you so much. It's been an welcome. absolute pleasure to explore this with you. We've all learned a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. See you in January. You bet. That was the PR Resolution Podcast. If you want to learn more about emerging areas of PR, join the PR Resolution and head to blog.coveragebook.com. Stay in touch by following me on Twitter at Stella Bales and make sure you subscribe to the series to get the next episode.